0: from john 5 uh, verses 30 to 47.
1: our scripture reading for today is from john 5:30 through 47. i can do nothing on my own as i hear i judge and my judgment is just because i seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me if i alone bear witness about myself my testimony is not true there is another who bears witness about me and i know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you have received glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only only God? Do Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is God's word.
0: Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are thankful that you preserved this exchange between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. Um, As he challenges them, um, may you speak to us and challenge us. Um, Would you make us not like the Pharisees, not like the Jewish leaders who— have never heard the voice of God. How tragic that is, that they would be so devoted to Scripture, so devoted to Moses, but have never heard your voice. Would you speak with us even this morning? Would we hear your voice through your word this morning? Uh, Wherever we're at, would you meet us and open our eyes, open our ears uh, to receive and hear you? We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This. Thursday, uh, the country learned that uh, former President Trump was indicted again. um, And so this time it was for mishandling classified documents. So I don't know how uh, much you have followed along with this. It's been quite the saga. Uh, About a year ago, the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago and found boxes of papers from his presidency, which all were technically, they belong to the presidency. They don't belong to uh, Trump. Um, One of the funniest things to me was when Trump months back in an interview uh, was explaining that the documents were no longer classified. And as president, he had declassified the documents when he took them to Mar-a-Lago. And when asked about evidence for this, he said, quote, there doesn't have to be a process as I understand it. You're the president of the United States. You can declassify just by saying it's declassified, even by thinking about it, (laughs) which is just the greatest line. Um, Just like declassification with the mind. That's so fantastic. How do we know when to believe someone when they make a claim? Uh, Jesus's claims to divinity were far more audacious than any of Trump's claims, as wild as they have been. Uh, Trump believes he is godlike in many ways, but Jesus believes he's actually God, right? Put yourselves in the shoes of a first century Jew, In front of you stands a man who claims to be equal with God. The only begotten son of God. Jesus, a verifiable human being with a verifiably unimpressive pedigree, right? What good can come from Nazareth? He claims to be God. Again and again, Jesus claims that he is not of this world, descended from heaven, sent from God to save humanity from their sins. He says that he is the only way of salvation the exclusive fulfillment of the hebrew Scriptures. so that following moses is not enough Uh, last week we learned that not only does he reveal god and what he's like as the son jesus alongside the father he has the power over life and death the authority to judge all men imagine if i started saying this to you like what would be your response annette has the appropriate response right you would chuckle You would laugh, even if you loved me, if you appreciated me, it would be right for you to sort of demand some evidence, um, to want some credible proof. Um, Of course, many of the Jewish leaders had sort of selfish, self-centered reasons to resist Jesus. Their power was threatened by Christ, but even for someone like Nicodemus in John 3, right, he's trying really hard to understand. He wants believe but he's just like i need something more from you how do we know when to believe someone who is making such wild claims Uh, claims that if true demand a complete reorientation of life and society he was asking the pharisees to really give up their life for him that's what would it be if it's true if it's false jesus's claims are blasphemous And in the first century would deserve death he would be rightfully executed Uh, based upon what jesus is saying publicly in front of the jewish authorities legally speaking jesus is either the long-awaited deliverer of the jews future king of the world or a criminal committing blasphemy a capital offense and so how do we decide well different cultures establish different measures to evaluate truth claims And so for Trump in the United States, we have a lengthy process to evaluate someone's claims, um, to evaluate their guilt or innocence, like just gut feelings are not enough, news stories aren't enough, indictments aren't enough. There's a whole process. Indictments are just the beginning of this process. Similarly, Roman and Jewish culture in the first century also had measures to evaluate truth claims. Um, And like ours, discerning truth and trustworthiness relied heavily on credible witness. And so, in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy outlines their judicial process. 19:15, a single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. Uh, this standard was especially important in capital charges. Deuteronomy 17:6, on the evidence of two witnesses. Or of three witnesses, the one who is to die shall be put to death. A person shall not be put to death on the evidence of one witness. And so what we have in today's text is Jesus marshalling a list of witnesses in his defense. Thus far he has hinted at his divinity, but now that he has publicly claimed equality with God, and now that he's been publicly accused of blasphemy, he has to prove himself, and that's what he does. And so Jesus will offer the Jewish leaders four witnesses, which each vouch for his divine identity. But before he does that, he says something that is uniquely important to us uh, in 2023, in verse 31. I think it would have been unremarkable in previous eras, but it is remarkable here. John 5:31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now, on the face of it, Jesus is just restating what we already read in Deuteronomy. One witness isn't enough to either bring charges or defend oneself. It's all c- also common sense, right? If someone makes a claim as big as being God, we need more than just that someone to believe and change. Trying to ter- determine what's true based upon just one witness is like trying to solve a word problem in math with just one fact. Like normally to solve a word problem, there are a couple facts that you need to have. Right, one fact is not enough. You need at least two or three in order to confirm what's true. And sometimes you actually need more than that to sort of triangulate your way to, the, to a full picture of the truth. This makes sense to us when it comes to math problems and federal indictments. But how much do we take this to heart for ourselves? Let's read it again, John 5, 31. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Do we live by this mantra? According to Jesus, even his internal witness was not enough to confirm its truthfulness. But we live in an era which not only says that internal witness is enough, many of our culture's most prominent voices and stories actually privilege internal witness over other forms of witness. Many people live by the opposite mantra, right? If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is still true. It's especially true, no matter what is said. There has been a revolution in truth-seeking over the past 200 years which exalts our interior world over our exterior world. And we can sometimes sort of see the ridiculousness of it in others, but it has infected all of us, um, honestly. It, it, it's one reason why we so value therapy. Right, Because to us, the most important truth to understand is the truth inside. My truth, right? And that personal truth stands over just about everything else. And I'm somebody who sees a therapist, values it so greatly. But it's easy to think that there I- therein lies the answer to flourishing, is if I could just understand myself. In our culture, we expect people to accept without question all statements of identity statements of truth statements of meaning based purely upon personal testimony the late uh berkeley professor robert Bela, he called this way of living expressive individualism and uh, carl truman explains it uh that it starts when the modern self where we find our identity assumes the authority of inner feelings and sees authenticity as defined by the ability to express those feelings and ryan anderson follows This modern self, then, is not accountable to the theologians who preach on how to conform oneself to God, but to the therapists who counsel how to be true to oneself. Authenticity to inner feelings rather than adherence to transcendent truths becomes the norm. And needless to say, that is not the world that Jesus was speaking to in John 5, and it's not the world that Jesus made. Truth is never at war with itself, because God is truth, God is one meaning truth is one. And so my internal truth should cohere with all external truths because all truth coheres. Jesus models that conviction here in John 5 when he's not afraid to subject his identity to outside witnesses. He literally says that if, if it's only me saying this, it is not true. And so he marshals other witnesses, even though Jesus, being God himself, could tell the Jews, right, forget everything else. I'm God. No other testimony is needed. Because I told you so, I am God. But even he is willing to point to witnesses outside himself. Now, again, you don't misunderstand me. Inner truth is valuable. Personal witness is important. He doesn't disregard his witnesses. He just says, if this is the only witness, therapy is good. um, My time with the counselor is very helpful. But if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. I've been challenged with that. Personally, just sort of wondering the ways that I privilege my sort of inner thoughts over evidence from others over seeking God outside of me my inner witness about myself must be brought into conformity with the witness of reality outside of me which is to say it must conform with the witness of God in reality outside of me God is always revealing himself to me in everything John 5 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Who is this other bearing witness? In context, Jesus is speaking about God, his Father. His Father is the one bearing witness about Jesus, whose testimony he knows is true. The truth is, God is always speaking all the time in everything, everywhere. And what is he speaking? Ultimately, he is speaking his word, the word, revealing himself in Jesus, the Son of God. All truth is aiming at Jesus. And this means that in all our truth-seeking, we are actually God-seeking. We are Jesus-seeking. We are after him because God is truth. Any truth I find out about our world or about myself, if true, is a truth that leads to God in Christ. And that's why we see Jesus in the Gospels marshalling scripture and history and nature and even people's stories, their hurts and needs in service to his mission. He's not just being nice when he heals someone from being crippled for 38 years. He is drawing them to himself. That is what he is after. He is piling up witness after witness after witness to himself and to his father. And we, too, can move about the world in that way. We should be looking for truth everywhere. We should be looking for God everywhere. Um, This fall, we're going to hopefully take a break from the Gospel of John and consider from Scripture, how do we know? Like, how do we know things? Uh, We live in such a skeptical age. Like, can we know what's true? Um, What are the authoritative sources for knowledge given by God in our life? How do we put them together? How are they ordered? Because God reveals himself in scripture. He reveals himself in nature. He reveals himself in our experience, in history, in tradition, in reason, in church. Can we live confidently? Can we believe confidently? Can we witness courageously to the reality of Jesus? Jesus lived confidently because he knew internally that he was the Son of God. His internal witness to his communion with the Father testified to his identity. John five thirty four not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. So he didn't need other witnesses, but he wasn't scared of other witnesses either. In fact, he appealed to these witnesses on our behalf so that we might live as confidently in him as he lived in the Father. But the witnesses are not an end in themselves, right? They're meant to draw us to Jesus. He, he wants us to live, he wants us to believe so that eventually we would not need witnesses. We wouldn't depend on witnesses, but we would experience Jesus ourselves. And then we would become witnesses to others. So quickly, Jesus offered his challengers four witnesses that validated his own witness about himself, that he really was the only son of God sent from God the Father. First, he points to the witness of John the Baptist, a person that the Jewish leaders initially looked favorably upon. So in verses 33 and 35, you sent to John, and he is born witness to the truth. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. And so when Jesus says you said to John he's recalling the story in John 1 when the priests and Levites sent a delegation asking if John the Baptist was the Christ and, and John the Baptist said no he vigorously denied that and on the very next day Jesus arrives to meet John the Baptist and in verse 29 it recounts this story the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and we can imagine that some of those Jewish leaders were still there And they watch John the Baptist say to Jesus, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. And so not only is John the Baptist identifying Jesus as the Messiah, he is identifying him as one whose ministry exceeds his own because it precedes his own. He's pointing to his eternity. For Jesus' second witness, Jesus points to the even greater testimony of his miracles. Verse 36, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. For Jesus, his miracles were undeniable proof that he was sent from the Father. And the Pharisees should have agreed. Uh, If you remember in John 3, the Pharisee Nicodemus already drew this connection how does he introduce himself John 3 1 now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him rabbi we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them and so they already see this connection between miracles and being sent John is here using Nicodemus's own logic against the Jewish leaders even according to one of their own, Jesus' miracles provide irrefutable testimony that Jesus is sent from God. And now, according to Jesus, the fact that he performs these miracles on the Sabbath is actually greater proof that he is the Son of God because only God works on the Sabbath. Jesus' third and fourth witness is the Father and the Scriptures. Now, with both of these witnesses, Jesus' stance is beginning to turn. From self defense into prosecution. So he's beginning to turn on the Pharisees. And that's because, with both of these witnesses, Jesus finds the leaders culpable for their unbelief. They were readily, um, they were ready to believe and accept John the Baptist and the miracles. But here is where the uh, heart of the Pharisees begins to show itself. Um, They agreed for a time with John the Baptist. They saw the miracles with their own eyes, and this is where the breakdown happens. So first, the Father's personal witness. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Um, It's hard to know exactly what Jesus is referring to when he says that the Father has himself borne witness, um, because you're wondering, like, how is this witness different from the miracles, John the Baptist, the scriptures which the Father is behind, right? This is some sort of special witness. And so is he talking about the voice at Jesus' baptism? If you remember when Jesus was baptized, the clouds part, and and a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And so maybe that's it. Maybe that's what he's referring to. But the problem is that part of the story is only indirectly included in John's gospel. We mostly know that from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so it would sort of be a a deep cut for for Jesus to, to say that and for John to include it. Um so is Jesus then talking about something happening inside a person, an inner witness that comes from God, which enables him or her to hear and see the Father spiritually speaking. In first John five, verse nine, it says, If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in himself. And so is there something that the Father speaks to us that's internal, that sort of joins our internal witness, an unspeakable sort of supernatural experience? Or is just Jesus speaking more broadly? So the answer is really like D, all of the above, right? Everything God does across salvation history and in our personal history is the Father's personal testimony of the Son. Regardless, though, Jesus is claiming as a witness the Father himself, independent of the miracles, independent of scriptures. God, if we take Jesus at his word, God is speaking to the Jewish leaders and calling them to believe directly. And so their unbelief is spoken against Jesus. They are resisting the Father's voice. They cannot hear his call. They are complicit in this failure to hear. And so John 5.37 continues, His voice you have never heard, His form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. When I read this, and a lot of times when I think about um, a doctrine of conversion, it's hard not to wonder that Jesus' reasoning is circular. Like, how how are they going to break in? Um, They don't hear because they don't believe, and they don't believe because they don't hear. And so how, how are they culpable for that? I think there is a break in the circle, though, if we look ahead to what he says about the scriptures, which are Jesus's final witness. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And so the Jewish leaders of all people should have been the most prepared to receive Jesus because they were ostensibly the most devoted to God's word. Their entire lives were given to the study of the Bible. I mean, virtually no one we know has studied anything as much as the Pharisees studied the Bible. We don't know this level of devotion, especially religious devotion. Like, we, we cannot get it. They had it memorized, likely the whole thing. They knew it backwards and forwards. They obeyed its commands meticulously. And yet Jesus says they had never heard God's voice. Despite the thousands of hours, tens of thousands of hours that they had spent reading, praying, discussing, they had never heard God's voice. What a tragedy. I mean, can you imagine what he is saying to them? But it's a common one. I think I think we can get it. Even in our devotion to Scripture, how many of us would say we love the Bible but have never heard God's voice in it or rarely hear God's voice? It's very, very easy to reduce the Scriptures into a set of facts, into propositions to live by instead of a voice to be heard. Um, I was speaking a few weeks back with someone who was sharing with me a a common struggle of faith and this person was lamenting like how can I accept as true something that doesn't make sense to me Uh, no matter how hard I've tried I've tried and it just doesn't make sense how can I believe it's true if I don't agree with it but then this person sort of answered their own question and said, well, you know, I guess that's what faith is, right? Believing in something you don't understand or agree with. And I, I get where this person is coming from, but I would tweak that definition a bit, just a little. Faith is not believing in something, it's believing in someone. And that small change is profound because then faith becomes understandable to us. It's it's impossible to practically impossible to believe something that doesn't make sense to you. Like you'd have to perform some sort of like Jedi mind trick on yourself, right? To sort of trick yourself into going along with something, to live in denial and truly one can only endure that level of cognitive dissonance for so long before it will tear you up. But it is possible, reasonable even, to believe in someone that I don't fully understand. Or agree with I might be required to do that in relationship with you maybe I'm with you on a trip or something and you are the more skilled person and I may think like well you're you're telling me to do something it's like I wouldn't do that but you know what I trust you and so I will go along with it in this context it's best for you to be in charge if I were deciding that's not what I would do but in this situation it's far better for me far safer for me to let you decide on my behalf. That is more what faith is, is trusting in a person, trusting in Jesus, a person who is none other than the eternal son of God, sent by God the Father to save me from my sins and give me eternal life. And I may not understand or agree with him on every detail. In fact, I would be surprised if I did. But it still makes sense to follow him because of who he is and what he's like. Uh, In a few weeks, we'll be covering John 6 when lots of Jesus' disciples abandon him, right? Because they're offended by what he says. He talks about eating his flesh and drinking his blood, and that weirds everybody out. And the thing is, the disciples are also offended, the 12 disciples. And so Jesus says to the 12 in John 6, do you want to go away as well? But Simon Peter, offended by what Jesus said, answers him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. He doesn't say to Jesus, yeah, I'll go because I fully understand what you mean by eating your flesh and drinking your blood. Like, I totally get it, and I'm happy with it. You have proved yourself to me. He doesn't say that. He says, where else will I go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed not in the details, but we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. The scriptures are about coming to Jesus and staying with him. That is what they are for. And yes, there are details, and we do sort of apply them to our life in various ways, and and it helps build out a philosophy and a way of thinking, but the, the purpose of the scriptures is finding and going to Jesus. And so, as we look at the tragedy of the Pharisees, who devoted themselves to the Bible and never heard the voice of God, it causes us to ask, what am I using the scriptures for? What am I using prayer for? What is church for? What is my truth seeking after? Am I seeking after Jesus who is truth and is life? Is my purpose communion with God? Is that what I want? Or have the scriptures become more of a manual for life, a strategy for personal flourishing, a source of wisdom? Has the Bible and Christianity and church and faith become more about an impersonal system of belief that I have to comply with, that I'm seeking to force my life into, manipulate for flourishing? Or is it about hearing from a personal God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? If you're curious about how to answer that question, ask yourself, when is the last time you heard the voice of God in his word? And it's okay if you say, I can't remember. It's totally okay. All I, I'm sure everybody in this room has been in that position, where it's been a long time since we've heard the personal voice of God in his word. But what I would encourage you to say is, That's what God gave the Bible for. That's what he wants for you, and so ask him for it. As you open God's word, ask to hear the voice of God. When is the last time you heard the voice of God in his word? When is the last time you were moved to worship by God's word? And this really is the Jewish leader's problem. The scriptures are for enjoying the glory of God, not using God to glorify self. And that's why they were devoted to the scriptures. They thought that the scriptures were the quickest way to their own glory. And they didn't get Jesus because they couldn't figure out a way to use him to glorify themselves. In fact, Jesus' glory threatened their glory. If you remember, in contrast, John the Baptist's response to Jesus' fame Jesus is getting more popular, he's getting more disciples, he's baptizing more people, and so his disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, ask him, like, are you okay with this? And in John 3.30, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Because John the Baptist is after the glory of Jesus. He doesn't care about his own glory. But that was not the response of the Jewish leaders. Listen to how Jesus diagnoses the Jewish leader's blindness, John 5.42, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe? How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? This is their, you know, Jesus is speaking here both about their impossibility of belief, how it is impossible for the Pharisees to believe, but it's because of their culpability. So he's saying, how can you believe? You cannot believe me. Why? Because you're so busy focused on getting glory from one another, and you are not after the glory that comes from the only God. They don't love God, because if they love God, they would love the one who comes in his name. And it's not just that they don't believe Jesus is from God, but they're patiently waiting for a Messiah sent from God, where they're like, you know what, we looked at the facts, we don't think you're the real Messiah, so we're just going to wait patiently over here. That's not what's happening because according to Jesus, they are all the time receiving others who come in their own name. What's the difference? Why refuse Jesus when they accept others? Because the one who comes in God's name is content with God's honor, honor and so is it beholden to them. John five forty one. I do not receive glory from people. And that bothers the Pharisees, that Jesus is not about glory from people. Jesus cannot be used. That's the reason Jesus is trustworthy, because he is emphatically not concerned with the honor of others, but only the will of his Father. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just. Why? Because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Unlike Jesus, though, the one who comes in his own name comes seeking his own glory. And this is good because he's playing the game they're playing. It's, it's a Messiah who's sort of playing the same gl- game. Uh, so you have Jewish leaders. They'd study the scriptures in order to make a name for themselves. They develop theories, attract students, and people would compete to be their students. It was like a Ponzi scheme of honor, right? And Jesus here is just pointing out that it's a Ponzi scheme. It's a house of cards. It's just a bunch of people honoring one another. I feel like we see this today all the time where people sort of just repeat the same mantras back and forth and, and people are more content to like signal virtue than pursue virtue. And those are very different things. right? Jesus is not after being told that he's virtuous or being told that he's good. He doesn't care. He doesn't receive that from men. He is after the glory of God. Some people refuse Jesus because they can't figure out how to use him for their own gain. He doesn't build up their system. But the irony is that when we refuse to use Jesus but just receive him as the son of God sent to save, like the disciples, who say, like, where do we go? When we do that, we gain everything. Luke nine twenty three and he said to all if anyone would come after me let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it uh, the Jewish leaders did figure a way out to use Jesus by killing him that's how they decided to use him in John 11 um amazingly, after some people told the Pharisees how Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, you would think that that would be the evidence that they would need to affirm Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, and the leadership is panicking. John 11:47. so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. In utter contrast with Jesus in John 5, who cares not for himself but for the will of God, here Caiaphas appeals entirely to self-interest. It is better for you. He d- I, I always assumed when I sort of, until this week when I sort of went to this text, I sort of recalled this as it's better for the nation. I just assumed that. But he is, he is nakedly appealing to self-interest. It is better for you, Pharisee. It is better for you, leader. It will protect your power if one man should die. What is he appealing to? That's how they would use Jesus, by killing him. But in fact, it turns out that God was using them. After Caiaphas convinces the leadership to kill Jesus in John 11, the apostle John, the writer, continues. In verse 51, he says, He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. It's wild. And, and what you have, this is John 11, so this is after many more chapters of Jesus pleading with the Pharisees, pleading with the leaders to believe in him, and them continuing to refuse. And then this is sort of their final refusal. And if, it, and if they're going to refuse him, then God will use them. And so God just uses them to achieve his own ends. Even as Jesus pleads with the Jewish leadership to believe in him, to believe that he is the son of God sent by the Father to save the world from sin, he knows that these Jewish leaders will be instrumental in his mission by killing him. Throughout Christ's trial, the Jewish leaders continue to offer Jesus tests to prove prove he's the son of God, but they are um, cruel and Wicked, so in Luke 22, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him as they beat him, and they blindfolded him and kept asking him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? In Luke 23, the rulers scoff at him while he's on the cross, saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. These are tests. And of course, Jesus being God could have done all these things. He could have named who struck him. He could have saved himself. He could have called armies of angels down, but he didn't. Not because he wasn't the Son of God, but because he was the Son of God. And the Son of God only does what the God the Father sent him to do. And God the Father sent the Son to save the world. Jesus came not to condemn the world, but to die for it. In order to save us, he had to die, and die, he did. And this is sort of the the final witness to Jesus' identity. Do we now believe, is this enough witness for us? So we have John the Baptist, we have his miracles, we have the Father's internal witness that is pinging us, the scriptures which foretold his death, and finally his death and resurrection. Is this enough to trust him, to leave behind our glory for his? To follow him, even though we don't fully get it. We don't have to get it. We just have to believe and we have to listen for his voice. Will we believe that is why he came? Let's pray. Dear Father, we are, again, thankful for this confrontation. We are, sobered by it. Um, Many of us here would count ourselves religious, uh, believers in the Bible devoted to your word, and so to see a group of people who are so much more religious than us, so much more devoted and knowledgeable of your word than we are, To see them resist Christ, the one whom you have sent. And we see this story, we read it, and we know that but for the grace of God, we would follow suit. And we can see, I can see ways that I have turned scripture into a system of thought, into a way of life, uh, a a rule book, a... uh, a place to find life hacks for flourishing. I I turn faith into that, and I neglect you. Father, forgive me for failing to look for you in your word, failing to sit with you and talk with you, to hear from you. Uh, we see how the Pharisees are culpable. And so we ask forgiveness for the ways that we are culpable for not hearing your voice. And so we just say, We believe, help us believe. We want to hear. Father, speak to us this morning, speak to us this week. Um, help us to come to you and to stay with you.